This episode of Light Source is brought to you by Squarespace.com. For fast, easy publishing of a professional website, check out photographers.squarespace.com slash ls. And when you sign up, use the promo code LS1 to receive a 10% discount. This is John Scarpati, and you're listening to Light Source. And welcome to episode 61 of Light Source, the official podcast of StudioLighting.net, the website introducing photographers to portrait and studio lighting equipment and techniques. I'm Bill Crawford, publisher. And I'm Ed Hidden, exclusive photographer with iStockphoto.com. Now, on today's episode, we have an interview from a talented music photographer and commercial photographer by the name of Scarpati. The website is Scarpati.com. It's S-C-A-R-P-A-T-I.com. If you want to check out some of his images while we're talking to him, uh, you can pull that up on your web browser. He has some really great stuff, and when you start going through some of his music collection, he has uh, his Nashville section, and he has a, a Los Angeles section, an LAX section. And i got to tell you, looking at some of these images it takes me back. It, it was taking back. us back. And i got to admit, I've been listening to hair metal bands ever since. <laughs> That's the- great, man. The, you got out the uh, Scorpion. The, the kicks, the kicks and the poison. Yeah, buddy. And actually, some of the stories that he was talking about that you guys will hear during the show, I've I've kind of re-listened to the music that he talked about during these shoots. And like some of them was the, the cover of the New York Dolls. I've been listening to the New York Dolls ever since then and picked up the DeNova Doll that he talked about off of iTunes. And they're a cool band to listen to. So it's like, it's kind of funny. I'm discovering music based on one of these photo shows. That we've you got to love that. There's a little bit of reaction to our assignment that we have, the Light Source Short Assignment. This month is Sayings. If you go to the Flickr group, which is flickr.com slash group slash Light Source, and in there is a thread about the assignment, and there a few people have contributed. I think there's like seven or eight of them currently, and we know we have a lot more listeners than that. So. <laughs> right. We either have a bunch of procrastinators or, or the assignment people just aren't into it. Which, I don't know, I, I think it's a good assignment. It's it's one that definitely uh, shakes up the creativity and gets the mind going a little bit. We'll, we'll pull back for the next topic and make an easier, more broad topic. Okay. Like, uh, we'll pick a color or something. Some <laughs> Red. Outside. There you go. So we'll, we'll pick something different for the next one. But yeah, I, th- I thought it was a fun one to challenge people right off the bat. Just seeing you riding in a wagon is was fun for me. So that that worked out. <laughs> Uh, well, you missed being there at the studio while I did it. <laughs> right. So. Although we have been shooting a little bit, and I love the fact that we're taking our camcorder with us when we do. Yes, and there is a new video that is going to be coming very soon. It's it's edited, finished. Just kind of got to get it up on wherever we're going to host this thing. So for right now, we're going to look for those at studiolighting.net, and we'll put links to it in the, the Flickr group and stuff like that. So check those out, and there's going to... You may have seen some of the photos of the shoot that we did. Kind of the, the premise of the video that we did is that I've always wanted to direct a photo shoot like a film shoot. So it was kind of interesting that we kind of went through with this as a storyline. And when I looked at all of the images, when I got them back to back, it, it kind of told a story, kind of like a comic book after I got my, my selects done. I had eat a good image from each scene, I guess as you would call it. Yeah, I thought it was an interesting way to direct a shoot, t- taking a cue from the film world and, and kind of going that route with it. So you'll you'll see that and you'll see behind the scenes and, and I don't want to spoil the whole thing. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. So we'll just leave that at a stay tuned. 
But there's been some other video in our Flickr group that's caused a bit of a buzz, my thought. Yeah, the user Ryan Allen from RyanAllen.com. An excellent behind-the-scenes video. I mean, it was it was wonderful. Like the guy that shot it is a professional videographer. It was obvious that there were some pretty high production values with it. Some really nice overspeed techniques and slow down to slow mo and dolly moves and all kinds of really cool stuff. And it was shot on HD and widescreen and just, it's a really neat look at a behind-the-scenes of uh, Ryan showing up at shooting some skateboarders. That is very cool. Yeah, it's a it's, it's an excellent video. It's where I want to set my mark for, for my video work. There was also a post, I think it was this afternoon or yesterday, uh, someone had added to the pool a DIY camera rig for mounting onto your car. Oh, I've seen some really interesting stuff with car photography. Yeah, well, we were even talking about bicycles and stuff like that. I've tried doing some Bogan super clamp stuff on a bicycle. It's a little sketchy. <laughs> better luck with the motorcycle just because you have a little bit more stability to the frame and some weight to hold the camera right. solid so i do hope to do a little bit more work with that this spring with doing some more motorcycle type work but this one is really interesting it has some high power suction cups attached to a rod attached to a tripod mount at the end of it then which uh, flicker user was that this is team u r it's t-e-m-u space r it's very cool it is really cool. The it images like that he got were cool, too. Yeah, they look like those your, your typical automotive pan motion where you have like the background's in motion, but the car's frozen. So obviously this camera is just kind of like hovering out in the middle of nowhere. Well, uh, we have a little bit of a longer interview in this episode, so we probably ought to let these guys get into the show. These guys would be us. Oh, you mean the list? Yeah. We're the ones always getting in the way of the interviews. This is true, and this is a really good interview, so we, do, we don't want to cut too much time off of this one. I'm anxious to hear what everyone else thinks of this interview. And on this edition of The Late Source, we have with us this evening a photographer known only as Scarpetti, and uh, really doesn't need to be known as much more than that because he has an amazing portfolio. Uh, during the pre-show, Bill and I were talking and looking through some of the music work that you've done, and feel like we're reliving some of our uh, musical roots here with uh, some of the album covers and work that you've done. Amazing work. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. Actually, one of the images that rolls on your homepage that really strikes me a lot, and it's one that I've, I've really liked a lot, is a new cover for the New York Dolls album. As we get into the show a little bit more, I'd like you to talk a little bit more about that shoot, because I've read some articles on it, and it's, it's a really interesting cover. But can you tell us a little bit about how you got started with your photography? Well, I was graduating from the University of San Diego with a business degree, and my father had set me up to do stock trend analysis with Payne Weber. And I guess that kind of frightened me. So I was lucky enough to then go to Art Center College of Design in Pasadena for a couple of terms because photography had always been my passion and love. But there were some qualms as to whether or not that was a real job. And anyway, I decided to go ahead and, and try and make that a real job. And, and luckily for me, while I was in school at Art Center, I got hooked up with some people at KROQ, which was a radio station, which then introduced me to the motels and then Steve Perry. And certain people just decided to give me a break and let me do what was going to be just press and publicity or some supplementary photography for their packaging so that I could get my feet wet. And uh, more often than not, they liked it so much 
that they started using this stuff for their covers and it started getting uh, upgraded and things just started to take off. And as a matter of fact, I was, I was so lucky things took off so fast that I literally had to um, drop out of school a couple terms in because I was missing so many classes with <laughs> job opportunities. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, the one thing that's just really, I'm really lucky about, I guess, or, or not lucky, it's, or it's strange, I guess, is I kind of skipped the whole assisting thing. Right. Because things took off so fast. And I know that most people, you know, cut their teeth assisting for someone and learning lighting and, and all of that kind of stuff. But I jumped on a pretty fast train. My first photo session I ever did was Steve Perry for the album Street Talk. And that was back when they were doing, you know, vinyl. Wow. And all he was going to give me was a little like three by three on the sleeve on the inside in black and white. And he gave me 20 minutes to shoot him. I got 12 frames off uh, of a four by five camera, which I obviously had pre-lit with a stand in because I knew that I was only going to get 20 minutes with him. And when he saw the pictures, he just said, no, that's my cover. Oh, nice. And then, and that one went platinum. So, um, <laughs> oh, man. It was just right place, right time, I guess, and, and, and just got lucky. And I've been doing that ever since and, you know, have just come to realize recently that's what I've been doing for the last, you know, 20, 25 years. Actually, I don't even know. I'm not keeping track anymore, but uh, I better continue to be able to do it because it's really the only thing I know how to do at this right. point. I've made my bed and it's time to sleep in it, I guess. Well, you've got a great foundation of work. Uh Actually, before we go too far along in, in your story, back then, what was it like to be in a student and working with these guys? Did you have limited equipment? Oh, you know, yes, I very much did. You know, one thing that was really fun about those days was I had such limited equipment and such limited knowledge that I, I feel like I was not encumbered by being afraid to do everything right and knowing how everything got done. So, I actually experimented more and tried more crazy things than I do now. Okay. So that was kind of fun. And I mean, back then, I just used this technique on an AKG ad campaign recently where I wasn't going to have enough lights and we were having to travel around from city to city and the budget wasn't very big. And I'm like, how can I light these band members in 15 minutes in between shows? And and I went, oh, yeah, do you remember back in the old days when you just had a couple of old battery-operated flash units and you used to have to set the camera up on the tripod and leave the shutter open and multiple top expose things because you didn't have enough lights? And, and I went, well, why, you know, why don't we run back to that? And I actually did it with a little bit more sophistication, and it was really fun. That sounds challenging. So, not as much as you think. The only thing that was really challenging about it is when you're making sure that your assistants, you know, hit the marks so that you get the, the right amount of light coming out of the strobe from the right direction. And really all you have to do is kind of choreograph it. You know, okay, I hit this mark, I'm this high, I fire here. And, you know, so when the camera opens and you know you've got whatever your 20 to 30 seconds of which you're going to kind of paint with light. You just, you know, you make sure you hit your spots. And sometimes, too, there's a little bit of variation in there that actually throws in some happy accidents. Right. That's something that I have worked very hard uh, recently to kind of take out of the equation. And I've gotten a little anal retentive and, and very precise to make things come out a certain way. And running back to the old art school days and, and letting a little bit of slop and 
and happy accidents slip in there. I just forgot and, and I'm enjoying again a little bit, just a different and fabulous way to work because there really isn't one way to work. And one of my favorite things about this industry and the reason I don't get bored is because every location, every studio, every all your talent, your sets, it's like a whole new wonderful set of parameters and problems to be solved and it's not that routine. Right. And I think that's one of the reasons that I became so afraid of doing stock trend analysis for a <laughs> right. brokerage firm because it it seemed like it was going to be it would be like being stuck at the Holiday Inn playing the same set every night. <laughs> you, you know, it would be kind of scary. And and one of the things that I've, I've been told is a problem of mine is that I don't have a style. And so sometimes when art directors or people are looking at books, my book is too all over the board. It confuses them and they're not sure where to peg me. So I actually lose some jobs over that because I haven't established the quintessential Scarpati look. Right. So when you want the look, you go to Scarpati. Even though I know I actually probably work less because of that, which I don't understand the logic behind that, but it's true, I still refuse and buck coming up with that and doing that because then I would slowly be falling into that routine of being at the Holiday Inn playing the same set over and over and over. You know, that's a really cool way to look at it. And we had heard before, you got to get your style and find your style early. And, you know, but I like this approach and I think it really comes through in your portfolio as, as a plus. Well, I'll tell you on a personal level, for me, it works. And I have chosen that and, and I enjoy that. I will warn anyone out there listening who's getting into the business of photography. It may not. No, it is not the most prudent business decision right. to make because people do like the comfort level of knowing that they're going to someone that has a look and going to them for that look. It, it truly is the way things work. So there's the backlash to that. To dig into that a little bit though, give us a little peek into how that diversity comes about. Are all these shots your idea or do you really lean on the musicians for their, how do you do that? That's one of the reasons why I like this business so much. There, there isn't one. There are bands that come to me that have absolutely no idea what they want, and I have almost pure creative control. Obviously, I pitch, I listen to them, I listen to their music, you know, I pitch concepts, and that's what we get to do. Those are actually becoming fewer and far in between, but those still do happen. Sometimes the art director at the record label pretty much has full control, especially if it's a young act. And they know, based on demographics and, mm. I don't know, whatever research they do, what's moving units and what's working. And they are trying to produce a product that will sell. And so we have to follow a certain look. And it, the wonderful thing is, it can be a wonderful mix of any of the people involved in the scenario. Sometimes management is actually the most powerful player. Sometimes it's the lead singer. Sometimes it's the entire band. And the demographics and the mix of how much each person is going to contribute to the project changes on almost every project. That's one of the first things you have to figure out is just the structure of, of all these people works and who you're listening to and who you're trying to please the most. The only thing that's a little spooky is from time to time, you'll have a new person show up whom you've never spoke with mm. show up on the set 
who has ideas. That's a little irritating. That would be. <laughs> Especially if you've taken production meetings and you've done comps and you've talked about it and you've hashed this whole thing out and you have a plan, you know, and you're like, and you are. Right. <laughs> and where were you during all the production meetings? And so I've set my studio up so that the place where you get wireless internet connection and food and all of that kind of stuff is kind of to the back of the studio where you can see what's going on. But I just kind of, then I try and, you know, shoo those people to, oh, here, did you notice we have some catering? <laughs> you know, and, and, and just do That's that. Great. And then I also cloned one of my monitors if I happened to be shooting tethered and, you know, moved it kind of away so that <laughs> people can feel like they're, you know, I can fuse easily. I'm, I'm not the, the sharpest attack in the box. And if sometimes if I get too many people yapping what they think all at me at the same time while I'm trying to work it, it you know, I've gotten pretty good at, at blocking that stuff out, but sometimes it can flush to me a little bit. Right. So I try and have some people run interference for me in situations like that. Yeah, I can see now you look at the, the roster of your studio and it's like, why is this person in the title bouncer? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, while we're talking about your studio a little bit, you have a little tour on your website at scarpati.com. It's S-C-A-R-P-A-T-I.com. If anyone wants to follow along that's listening to this at their computers, you have an excellent studio tour. And it's it's actually something I think I would love to come down and visit and see. It's a, now, Tell us a little bit about the space that you have to work in here. Well, the space I have to work in is, I. It, it's interesting, I love it, but it has a lot of shortcomings. I had a 6,000 square foot studio in downtown in Los Angeles, and it was wonderful because I could build multiple sets, I could have things staged off to the side to fly in, there was a, just a, there was a big footprint and a lot of elbow room and room to work, and I got very spoiled with that. Hmm. One of the things that I got very spoiled with and I really miss is when we were doing a big set, you know, I could spend days building the set, lighting the set, tweaking the set with stand-ins. There's nobody over your shoulder. There's, there's nobody watching you. You can take breaks when you want and just really get it to the point so when the talent or the client shows up, it's really ready to go. And any massaging that you have to do at that point is fairly minimal, which means, you know, at least for me, I don't have to think about technical things so much because I've kind of worked out those details and I can enjoy working with the talent and spend more time being a little bit of a director or a uh, ringmaster or just interacting with the people to try and get the moods and things out of them that I want. And the studio that I have here, which I love because I own it. Every other studio I've ever had has been a rental, but because I own it, it's not that big. It looks bigger on the webpage because I use the 16 millimeter lens with a 35 millimeter camera. And yes, we all know I cheated there, <laughs> but you know, so I can do one decent size set here. And then the problem with that is when you're, if you're striking sets that are complicated at all, the rest of the parts are housed in the garage or, you know, someplace else and there's not the room to move. But it, it's, it's wonderful for smaller sets. It's wonderful for simpler sets. And since it's built off the back of my home, it's actually incredibly comfortable and homey. Right. I've also come to realize that I can't rent it because it is so homey. 
it's not like in L.A. I could rent my studio. There was absolutely no problem. I put my stuff away. There was a big empty warehouse that people could come in and use. They could leave. I mopped the floor. It was easy. It's no problem. Right. Here, it's like you literally are walking into my life, my home. My kids' stuff will be around. I mean, <laughs> I do try and keep that upstairs and out of the way. But, you know, it's way looser, and I can run around barefoot. And so there's a lot of joy to this fun studio. And the one thing I do have, which I probably overcompensated on a little bit was high ceilings. They're 22 feet. Wow. That's great. Yeah. But <laughs> it, I, I couldn't afford a motorized grid or anything like that. And that's the only part of the studio I haven't taken full advantage of yet. Yeah. I put stuff up 12 feet, 14 feet every now and then. Occasionally we may go 16 feet up for some reason, but I haven't seen the top of the studio yet. That's terrific. Oh, well, you mentioned the homey feeling do you find that that affects your subjects at all? You know what? I actually think it does. I think it makes it more comfortable. I think I think people walk in and relax a lot quicker. And I had never actually seen anything like this until I moved to Nashville. Some of the record labels are literally in old, like, four-square homes wow. and things like that. I can remember walking into a major record label and being in a living room with a fire going and on a couch and someone coming in and asking me if, if I needed something to drink. And, a, and, you know, I'm so used to steel and taking elevators and, and glass and a more corporate environment that it was kind of threw me a little bit. Right. And that was my kind of first taste of a more kind of a home cottage style of working. And so, you know, for a while when I was here, I actually rented a studio and when you rent a studio, as soon as you rent a studio, you'll have nothing but six months worth of location work. All you'll do is pay pay rent and mop the floor. And you'll think to yourself, why am I throwing money at this? You know? So I let that go. And then I started kind of renting um, studios on an ad need basis, which is fine if you're young, but you know, if you get a little older and you can't afford as many assistants uh, as you really need, and you're ending up hauling a lot of C-stands and sandbags and, and, stuff yourself and then when you yell rap you're like oh now we gotta break it all down <laughs> That's and me. take it home <laughs> you, you know and then when you get it home you know you pull the trailer into the garage and you're like oh god i'm not gonna unload this tonight and and so kind of wearing me out with the with the running and then i realized well you know what it's not going to be as big as i would like it's not going to be as fancy as i would like but i could probably build something that i could shoot 70 percent of my studio work in off the back of my house. And then when all said and done, I'll own it, which means at some point, you know, I can sell it and then even theoretically make some money on it. And between you and me, the only thing I've ever really done in my life that made total financial sense was I bought a house in Nashville at the right time because my property values have gone up exponentially. And I don't think I've ever bought or done anything that was worth more money than I invested in When you it. were done with it, right? <laughs> yeah, when I was done with it, everything else I've got is like, oh, I paid that much for this. Digital back, what's it worth now? Oh, oh I paid this much for that car, you know, whatever it is. And so the house in the studio is the first thing I've ever actually done that, you know, the studio in LA killed me when I tallied up how much I had spent in 10 years in rent there and I was walking away. And I was like, well, I've got pictures. Yeah, there you go. That's not walking and away. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> One quick question before we before we leave the studio here. Um, 
I, I love the, the design of everything is great. The wood textures are great. Real quick with the wall choice. You have a really cool color on the wall. It's, it's almost like a, a steel gray or like a neutral gray. Talk a little bit about why you chose that for the look of it. Memories. My studio in Los Angeles was, was gray. Uh, the front half of the studio was gray and the back half of the studio was black. You know, I'm not sure, but it might be 18% gray. Oh, that's what I did it. That, so I yeah. can color correct uh, off of my wall at any given point. No, not, not really. But that, That's a great idea. But, but, you <laughs> know, it, 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 it's that whole 18% photographer gray thing that we just, you know, when we don't know what to do, that's what we pick. Right. <laughs> well, actually, I'll tell you real quick into the, the reason behind that question is I have a, a small space in a warehouse and it's mostly office space in, in all of these buildings. And I have a rather large room and I keep looking at it every time I'm in there and I'm like, Ugh. it's like, I can't believe that I have this white in here still. And I know it kills me with my exposure that I, I just seem like I can't get everything dark enough that I want. It's like, hmm, I got to ask him about the gray. Well, you know what? And that's one of the reasons. And one of the reasons the second half of my studio, I actually went black with it, was because when I started getting really particular about my lighting, I was like, okay, this is going to be a completely void, matte black room. And any light that's brought in, it's going to be because I put it there or I put a reflector or I bounced it and, you know, all of that kind of stuff, which is still probably one of my favorite ways to work. I don't have like windows in, in the studio that I use for natural light or anything like that. I, uh, some, I, sometimes I have difficulty with natural light because by the time I'm ready to do what I want to do, the damn thing's moved. Yes, I totally you know? <laughs> and, feel your pain. And, and, and <laughs> even when I do location work, you know, you don't always get to, but I really try and get out to the set the day before and get a feel for the areas that I want to shoot and get a feel for where the sun is going to be at a certain time of day and at least pretend like I'm prepared for the right lighting. And the reason I say pretend is because, you know, you do that and then it rains or, you know, then the clouds are out or, you know, you know, whatever. A couple times it's even been snowed and trust me on the times that it snowed, it was like, what? Snow at this time of year. This isn't a Christmas album. How fun. <laughs> you know, so it's not that I don't do natural light stuff, but it certainly is not my forte. I always try and supplement it. I try not to count on it. I've just always, I'm more comfortable when I'm setting up lights. I know that slows me down for a lot of people, and a lot of clients want more looks faster over the course of the day and the more you can do with a smaller lighting package and just with bounces and fills and utilizing natural light is very beneficial to keeping a, a good pace going right. but it's not my preferred method of working of course you know we rise to the occasion and we do whatever is necessary to get the job done the way the client wants it so i'm not saying i can't do it or i don't do it it's just right. not my first choice speaking of first choices when it comes to equipment you seem like the kind of guy that likes to control your environment. What does that mean in terms of choosing lighting equipment-wise? Let's get into some technical stuff for a minute. Well, you know what? That's so funny because I've, I've actually started thinking about my lighting and a lot of my gear again recently. And I started doing some new tests. And moving to a 30-megapixel digital sensor has actually created some light issues for me as well, which I'll go into, and, and, and I actually can share some information that might be helpful to some people on this. All right. I happen to be using Speedotron equipment for my lights. 
the reason being was back when I was getting out of art school, it just seemed like the right choice to me. Uh, there were brands that were less expensive that just seemed a little cheap to me. There were brands that were more expensive that I wished I could have afforded, but then I couldn't get the amount of equipment I needed. And the Speedatron equipment, which I guess Profoto and Bronicolor and all kinds of other brands are more hip or better now, but I've just stuck with that. And even recently, I've noticed for anywhere between four and six hundred bucks, you can pick up a Black Line 2400. Uh, 2403 CX or B, and I got to tell you, they're bulletproof. I have some that are 20 years old, and I literally, I don't suggest doing this, but when your assistants <laughs> throw things around and drop things, and I mean, I literally feel like you could beat on them with hammers for 10 years, and wow. they're still going to keep firing. So because I'm not rich and because I can't afford to upgrade equipment as much as I would like, the fact that something has longevity and is going to be a workhorse is really important to me. And the other reason it's really important to me, too, is I think something's new and, you know, it may need to be serviced and I'll start bitching and moaning and I'll go, oh, I got that 12 years ago. <laughs> exactly. You know, so time flies. On yeah, it these, does. Uh, you know, on these things. And that's one of the reasons I was so excited when I saw phase one's crazy zany test where they baked a back and they put one in dry ice and, you know, they're dropping them off cars and putting cars on top of them. And mm. cause I was always, you know, I'm always like, Oh my God, I paid so much for this. Nobody breathe on it. Oh my <laughs> God. You know, if it should ever break and I should have to replace it, I'll have to take out a loan, you right. know, but I'm starting to feel like it is very rock solid as well. But, Oh, back to the lighting. I've always just used 102 heads, and I've never really had um, a problem with them or a problem that I noticed before. Just recently, I have been noticing that when you get into the really big sensors, it seems to me like there's so much detail that stopping action and flash duration is way more critical than it's ever been. Or maybe my eye's just getting better. I don't know, but... I have been running into an issue with the flash duration on a standard issue head. The flash duration is pretty damn long. So I've just picked up a couple of the 105 dual cable heads, which have four flash tubes in them. I saw a picture of that on your website. Oh, I love it because instead of one flash tube going with light <laughs> right. to get all that power out there, um, I don't know how to explain it with the, except with the sound effect. The, You've the got worst. four little lights going throwing out the same amount of light, which means you can start to use your key light at, for your shutter speed instead of having to rely on the fact that a, if a Hasselblad, at least my Hasselblad, only five hundredths of a second, which is not really all that fast, especially if you're working with a band like Denova Doll or somebody like that, that basically these kids are just wild and crazy and cannot stop moving. <laughs> You know, I'm, you know, you need a really short flash duration to be able to do that. And I mean, I'm talking like one two thousandth of a second or faster. And once you get it, so I find it a little odd that on two and a quarter film and, and, and some things like this, I didn't really notice it that much. But, you know, when you're blowing up a 96 meg TIFF or whatever it is, you know, and you look at it and you can, you know, all of a sudden you can see every piece of fabric and every piece of detail the way you can with these, these really big high res digital backs they have now, 
just the littlest bit of movement actually shows up. And, and a test that I did recently that made me realize, yeah, it is because of the resolution and the clarity of these backs, is if you downsize those images, you know, and you, you shrink them, they sharpen up and they tighten up and you will lose some of that blur that maybe is only a couple of pixels long because okay. you now have less pixels. So that blur gets smaller. That's one thing that I've learned recently that's new for me. I never realized how big of a deal flash duration played in stopping action. Yeah, that's really interesting. So that's something that I don't think was as big a, big of a factor as it used to be. And then another new thing I just got recently, which I think I'm falling in love with, of course, I'm in the honeymoon phase. Okay. I just got these. <laughs> And so, you know, all is right in the world. We'll see, we'll see how they continue to perform down the road. But have you heard of Light's tool, Light Tools egg crates, soft egg crates? Yeah, we've talked about them a couple of times. Oh, you did? Never used them, though. You know, I find myself, I love soft boxes. But the other problem is, as I also love drama <laughs> okay. and contrasty light. And raw heads, uh, tungsten elements through lenses traditional lighting it's too harsh it's not flattering enough and then the soft boxes uh, so i always end up going back to them it seems like i always use soft boxes but then i end up having to like flags and scrims and you know all of this stuff to get control over that light the uh, egg crates are kind of fun for not finishing it but dialing it in like 50 percent of the way and it looks like i'm going to be able to get away with it like at least two less c stands per light down the road. So that's oh. that's a fun new tool. But sure. you know what? There's actually one thing that I wanted to kind of say that I thought might be beneficial to people who are lighting. Two things that I've noticed that I think are really important that maybe don't get addressed enough. With lighting, you know, you can see what your lighting's doing and you can you can tell when your your lighting's good and you have a, a feel that you like and all of that. But I think the two things that get overlooked more often than not are one the removing of light. All right. And that would, whether you're using a scrim or a finger or a gobo, or I wouldn't use another silk because that's just going to make the light even flatter when it comes off of it. But cinefoil, foam core, what, you know, whatever you're doing, taking light off or removing pieces of light or changing the shape of the light to set a mood in the subject, I think is really important. And you know, it's overlooked a little bit, but it's not as overlooked as the next issue. And that is, I've been finding, and especially if you move to a gray or a black room that's not picking up any reflections, bringing in a piece of foam core now and then and moving it in, not as a, and, and here's what I can't get through to a lot of assistants and people, not as a bounce, not as a fill, not as another light source, just as something white so that if there's sheens or chrome or uh, even leather pants will pick it up, something to put reflection in shiny objects, I think is a really fun little touch that's rarely addressed. Maybe it's not rarely addressed, and maybe it's actually an incredibly obvious thing, and everybody does it, and I just figured it out. But having and picking a couple of pieces of 4 by 8 foam core and figuring out where you want them not not as a fill, but just as like a little catch reflection is really cool and fun. Everybody always wants to move them in to the point where they become lights, 
And you're like, no, it's not a fill. I, you know, I don't <laughs> want to actually light the skin. I just, just to catch some shimmers and, sh- and sheens on the reflective surfaces. So it kind of adds more visual interest to the dark surfaces or shiny surfaces. Sure. And I mean, a perfect example of it would be vinyl pants. Right. If you're shooting someone and they have a chrome mic stand. Oh, okay. Well, you don't necessarily need to light it, but if you don't take a piece of foam core or something and set it kind of off where it's catching some light, obviously, because it needs to, to go white, but it takes very little light for a for shiny object to catch a reflection. And I, I wouldn't so much call that, I mean, I guess it is lighting them, but it's not lighting them in the sense that I think of lighting something because it's, it's just a reflection and, and breaking up, using reflections to break up areas. Wow, that seems like a subtle thing that can make a big difference. It really can. I also have to always make sure that they're pulled back far enough that they're not actually lighting the subject as well. That's definitely something we're going to have to play with at the studio next time, Bill. I agree. Bring your vinyl pants. <laughs> no, you bring your vinyl pants. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look for it all. <laughs> Do you mostly use softboxes then? You mentioned that you like them a lot. I shoot exclusively in softboxes. Okay. Now, every now and then... I get mad that the soft boxes have too much wrap and they're not contrasty enough. And, you know, every now and then I'll, I'll get mad at them and I'll rip out a silk in a grid spot and say, all right, well, if you're not going to give me the light I want, right. I'll just move <laughs> to another light, you bastard. <laughs> and those are always just a little bit too harsh, unless you've got the really hot babe or the, tw- you know, the 20-year-old pop act. And then, you know, you pretty much... The sky's the limit. You can light them any way you want. They're going to look great. But most people aren't, you know, supermodels. So, right. so you, you have to be a little bit more careful with them. I always seem to do go to the softbox. I will tell you, though, that I've taken, I don't use the, diffusion, the secondary diffusions. Oh, really? Okay. On the inside. You know, maybe with product or something like that. But I, I like to keep, I like softboxes, and I like to keep them as harsh of a softbox as I can Another thing, which this is so, this is embarrassing, but, you know, I've been doing research into softboxes, and that's only because a lot of the softboxes I have are, well, let's just say they've served me well, right. and, I, and, and it's, it's time to slowly start looking again. Right. And maybe they didn't have this many variations on, on softboxes uh, last time I purchased softboxes, but Shamira, you know, Pro, super pro, super pro plus. Right. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, oh my god, what are all these? What are all of these variations? And you know, I'm pulling out my soft boxes, and I'm like, oh, this is a super pro. So it doesn't have Velcro on the inside for the attachments. Well, that sucks. I guess I'm going to have to have a seamstress sew some Velcro in there for me. Exactly. And then, and then I got this other little one just recently because I was looking for a little bit of a harsher light, and it turns out it has a silver interior instead of a white interior and if you take the secondary diffusion out of it and put an egg crate over it i'm telling you it's it's like it's kind of fun it's like putting a snoot on a fresnels yeah like the the focusable lights the big yeah the the big studio lights yes it's like that but without the heat and the burn (laughs) and the and the uh the really, really hard line shadows. You still get your shadows. You can still you can still pull a Rembrandt lighting and get that triangle mm. under the eye, 
But instead of that shadow being a snapped hard line, it's just got a little bit of gradation. And the white where the key's hitting is softer and it doesn't blow out as fast, which is really nice. But it doesn't have that really slow gradation that a softbox or, you know, I guess even an umbrella would have. I'm actually, just in the last couple of weeks, I've been deciding that I have a lighting system that works. It works very well, but it involves too many parts and it takes too long to set up. So I'm slowly bench testing and going into a new phase where I'm trying to figure out if there's ways that I can get the lighting I like faster so I can spend less time setting up lights and more time working with the talent. Okay. When, when you have a band or a group shot, do you use larger softboxes or do you multiple small ones? How do you handle the different planes well, of people? Um, that's funny. I ran into that with the New York Dolls. And <laughs> one of the things I had to do with the New York Dolls, the New York Dolls is not, um, that light is a little softer and a little safer and a little more generic than I would normally use. But I was able to do that and I had to use it for two reasons. One, I was able to use it because we built force perspective into the room. We painted force perspective into the room. That's great. Plus, I used a wide-angle lens to exaggerate it. But I wanted it to happen, but I didn't want it all to rely on a wide-angle lens, because if it all relies on the wide-angle lens, then the, you got the potential of your talent maybe getting a little more artsy in their look than, right. than, than they're accustomed to. <laughs> and, well, what's really... My hand's really big. My head's shaped like a peanut. What's up with that, right. you know? So we, we, put, we put about half the forced perspective we needed into the room. Plus, we built so much contrast, pop, and, you know, accents into the set that lighting it flat was okay because the set was just so exciting in and of itself. It didn't need a lot of extra drama. And uh, my biggest softbox is probably about, what is that, four by six. Okay. And... I set that up as a nice, big, safe Paramount light, and yeah, it lit the front three guys really well, but the ratio from, you know, uh, David Johansson in the front to all the way in the back, well, you know, dropped off a little bit too much, so it kind of boomed in two more two-by-three okay. softboxes to kind of just keep that softbox going and just, you know, build it up longer and over the top and use those to have that, you know, big light source continue and ended up using three. But where they were placed, it was turned the three into the one big one. Wow. Okay. Yeah, it was really nice because since the lighting was so simple and flat and set up and didn't need to be changed, then that was one aspect of the shoot. You could go check <laughs> right. and move on and, and, and think about other things. That's really cool. Before we go, as we were reminiscing, looking through some of your images, a couple things. How have bands changed over time since uh, you working with the L.A. crew and then moving to Nashville and working with some of the guys down there? What's been some of the big changes you've seen over the years with those guys? Um, you know what? I would have to say no. I would have to say that one of the things that's really fun about working with bands is, once again, it's so all over the board, which is one of the things that I thrive on and enjoy so much. And my favorite part about it is, is you never know what kind of band and what band is going to be what. I mean, you have seasoned professionals who are, have been at this for a long time and are very good and easy to work with. 
You have kids who have discovered stardom out of the gate very quickly and early on that can maybe be difficult. (laughs) And you have mixes all the way in between. You have artists who are just amazing artists that you're in awe that you're even having the opportunity to work with them. And they can be anything from the most humble, normal person you've ever met to timid and shy and you can't figure out why right. to, I mean, it's, it's like people, they're just so diverse. And I just, I haven't seen any big changes because there's just, there's so much diversity in it that it just seems like it's almost always a new set of parameters, which is kind of fun. That is cool. One of the ones that always shock me the most is when you're working with a band that is, say, an incredibly outrageous band on stage and has a like a really just kind of a, I don't even know how to explain it, but a scary or menacing kind of persona uh, to them. And they show up, and at first you maybe even almost think the roadies are bringing stuff in or right. something, and they're, they're just completely normal people, <laughs> and that's a show that they put on. Oh, that's wild. And when the show's over, it's like, okay, show's done. It was like Halloween's over, and they're back to being completely normal. That's wild. And then you have the, you have the other extreme where you have people who literally, I mean, they live that lifestyle 24-7. Because if they're not living the lifestyle, they're not real. Right. And I just don't know how to explain it. You never know what you're going to get. And sometimes when you think you know. They surprise you. (laughs) Yeah, they surprise you. So it's really fun that way. I can tell you I've been very lucky working with some indie rock bands again lately. And it's been, talk about, actually, I would say it has not changed because it's making me relive uh, my 20s right. <laughs> in a lot of ways. And I'm having these wonderful flashbacks. And, you know, I'm thinking I'm back in college. It's great. You know, I wake up a little sore the next morning, <laughs> which I didn't used to. But I guess the only change that I've seen is, and especially compared to the 80s, overall, people probably take better care of themselves. They probably don't party as hard as they used to and are a little bit more serious about making sure that they can be around for the long haul. Okay. That's a little bit of a, ch- a change that, I, right. that I've seen. I, I've seen a, a little bit of a maturing in that. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that probably the record labels just don't have the time or finances to babysit the way they used to. Right. And so they're probably looking for more self-sufficient acts. Makes sense. It makes you wonder if the record companies are doing kind of a uh, professional development class in the background once they sign the dotted line. (laughs) (laughs) Could be. There were there have been times in my life where you you were thinking that would be a good idea. (laughs) I'm not going to ask you to pick a a favorite band that you've worked with on set, but what is one of the more memorable shoots that you've done with with a band? Well, two shoots come to mind right away. And that's just both because they're current and for for different reasons. So maybe I can try and give you a short answer on each one. I know you had mentioned the New York Dolls earlier. I love Um, that cover. I do too. And I love that cover for so many reasons and on so many levels. I had been missing a style of photography that was one of my favorites that I was 89 through 92 doing a lot of. And it gave me an opportunity to go back there and play. And that was really nice. 
The other thing was I found out for financial reasons it was too expensive for me to try and do this shoot in New York. So I found out that if I worked with uh, people from Brooklyn that I could get much better rates. Hmm. Plus the people that I talked to, they just happened to, we just all happened to click. Like, for example, instead of having to, to build a set in one day and then shoot and then break it and get out to be able to afford to use the space, I could get a space for three days which meant I could go back to my old... Remember I was telling you about my old style of building sets when I had the big studio in Los Angeles? Right. Take my time, paint the color, think about it, change my mind, <laughs> right. Madonna, repaint it, move the lights. You can't get away with that kind of crap when there's people tapping their watches and looking at you. But you can if it's like, okay, I'm not getting paid for today. I'm just going to eat today, play, and have fun and make this look the way I want. So I found a, a studio that set in Brooklyn that afforded me the opportunity to do that. And then the other thing, though, that was really cool about it was my dad grew up in Brooklyn. And he had moved to New Jersey when I was born. So, so I myself never grew up in Brooklyn, but I had a lot of family in Brooklyn. And I remember going out on Uncle Mikey's boat out of Sheep's Head Bay and blue fishing and stuff like that. And I hadn't been there in ages. So kind of running around in Coney Island and checking out my dad's old stomping grounds was really fun too. On top of that, David Johansson and actually all of the members of the New York Dolls, just the coolest, most awesome people to be around. It was unbelievable. Like David Johansson and, and Mara picked us up and we drove around and he went with us when we were picking out props, when we were oh, doing wow. stuff. And so imagine the tour of New York I got (laughs) while we're driving around picking up props and stuff. And the art director, Jeff Chenault, on the project was, you know, just amazing. So, you know, everything about that experience was really wonderful. And I took a whole week. I went up there and probably worked on it for three or four days. Yes, we could have done it in a day if we doubled our crew and busted our nut. But um, I had the opportunity to, you know, take a couple of days setting it up and go slow and enjoy myself. And then a little bit of sightseeing, which I nine out of ten times I do not get to do when I, when I travel to a city. It's, that one was amazing on all those kinds of levels. Visually, the being able to go back to one of my favorite places and work styles. I mean, it was win, 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 win. The only mistake I made was I loaded up my van with all of my gear and I drove up to save money on airfare and uh, rental equipment. And I don't know, but I think it's called the Shenandoah Valley. Mm, I know There's where you're valley. <laughs> There's some valley on the way that's like the twilight zone. <laughs> it just never freaking ends. <laughs> I'm like, where are we? In the Shenandoah Valley? <laughs> that can't be possible. We, that was eight <laughs> hours ago. Where are we really? So, you know, other than that experience on both the way up and the way back, you know, all was good. And so that was cool. Another project, which happens to be, it's very strange, happens to be with the same art director and same record label, would be Denova Dahl, whose album came out yesterday, as a matter of fact. The thing that I enjoyed, work, and that one was shot here in Nashville, that I enjoyed about that one so much was the band members were so cool, so creative, so fun to work with. Once again, I was very much given the opportunity to just play. Label gave us gave us a lot of free reign to do what we wanted. So when I was sitting down with Joel and Saray and we were coming up with ideas, the sky was the limit. 
we didn't have to, you know, hit any particular look. So we got to play and do a lot of crazy things. Unfortunately, a couple of my favorite things that we did for them haven't actually been used yet. And I don't know if that was because, and they were certainly the best, if that was because they were too outrageous or they're <laughs> saving the best for, you know, something special and last. Right. Anytime a band, you can say, all right, we're going to cut off all your heads. We're going to mount them onto uh, moose plaques, hang them on a, <laughs> uh, uh, above the uh, fireplace, and we're going to put a Saray and a Pocahontas outfit with a musket and a dog standing in front of you. You, you know these guys, <laughs> they've got a sense of humor. They're fun. They're game. That's great. You know? Or if you say, we're going to paint you gold and, and, and draw fake mustaches at you, and let's all, you know, pose like your muscle men in front of a tent, you know, in Coney Island in the 20s. And they all go, yeah! Oh, that's terrific. You, know, you kind of love clients like that. Absolutely, yeah. Try doing that with a family of four, Ed. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Well, but they're the other reason I had to start looking into flash duration, though. Oh, okay. Moving around so much. Yeah, you know, like you'd expect people to be doing trampoline shots and catching you in midair? Right. The only difference is that you weren't allowed to wait till they were at their apex where they actually stop moving. When someone jumps up, they oh, actually right, stop right. moving when they're at the top of the jump. Well, when you've got five people, they're not coordinated, <laughs> um, which means there really is no particular apex except maybe out of one out of five. And they're bouncing like that, and they don't even have a trampoline. <laughs> you know? That would be a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. It is a lot of fun. It's one of the reasons I actually um, I still do this. I'm I'm not rich. I don't have a I don't have a retirement account. But you know I make enough to get by month to month, and it's an awesomely fun job. That's cool. And if that's the price you pay for enjoying what you do, that's a price that I'm willing to pay. Absolutely. It's been a real pleasure just hanging out with you tonight, and and thank you so much for sharing with us and with our audience. I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much, and talk to you soon. Well, that's all we have for this episode of Light Source, the brightest podcast on the internet. Be sure to check out the show notes for this episode and all the other Light Source episodes at the website studiolighting.net. And you can also send us an email comment at studiolighting at gmail.com when you can send us comments, questions, or just images that you'd like us to see. And if you really want to get involved with some of the other listeners to the show, you can head over to the LightSource Flickr group at www.flickr.com slash groups slash LightSource. You can post your images and get feedback on your photography as well as seeing the things that we're taking pictures of. And as always, if you missed any of these links, our quick outro here, you can find all of that and more at www.studiolighting.net. Till next time. Bye-bye. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. photocastnetwork.com.